Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Voxology Podcast with your co-hosts, with the co-most, Michael Carleary, Timothy John Stafford. Here we are, ladies and gentlemen. We are in March. There is madness happening in the world that is far beyond the March madness of the NCAAs. <laughs> we are here, though, at our assigned posts, commenting as the, as the rest of humanity breathlessly waits for our takes, our hot takes on things. Right. Um, and so here we are. We're we're going to deliver takes that are hot, and hot. Uh, and smoky, and um, and so yeah, uh, we're we're grateful to occupy a space that no other middle aged white guys have occupied in culture. I told you so that we're, I petitioned to the that. college that I'm at to teach a class called Hot Takes and Hot Cakes, where we eat pancakes and talk about hot takes. First of all, it's the greatest class idea I've ever heard. I think so. Secondly. Can you do it online? Can I participate <laughs> online if I have my own cakes? Yes, yes I was going to say, you're going to have to make your own pancakes, but... Yeah, that's fine. That's fine. That's one of the very few foods I am, uh, I'm capable of making, so... I love pancakes. Yeah. Yes. Well, yes. Who doesn't? I like... I mean, if I'm not... If, if we're going to be really vulnerable, I like <laughs> banana pancakes. Hey, you know what I make every single morning for the last, like, four months? Banana what? oatmeal pancakes for my kids every single morning wow so you're not just somebody who offers the random hot cakes you're no. somebody who's living I'm the invested. hot cake kind of life i'm invested yeah. i love that timothy i'm i'm proud of you what seth Thank Erie? You. i'm lucky because seth Erie, all seth Erie wants uh for breakfast in the morning is chocolate milk so <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, my kids are the same way. They go to school and they offer that during the snack break before lunch. And yeah. we cannot get Mazzy to stop drinking it. But they're, you yep. know, yep. when chocolate milk calls, you got to answer. Well, I've, it, evidently, and I don't know if this is some sort of lie from the chocolate milk like lobby, but evidently chocolate milk has some protein in it and it's supposed to help you sort of recover. That's what I've heard from my son, Nate. Um, I don't know that Seth is aware of those medicinal properties. I think that be. Seth really loves having a chocolate mustache that I have to then chase, <laughs> chase him around in the morning to wipe off his face. Just hide those uh, permanent so, markers. Yeah. Oh, dude. <laughs> Seth. So Seth went through a phase where he would, he would like, he saw his sister watching makeup TikToks. Yeah, and so he would film videos of himself putting makeup I on and then come that. down. It is the greatest. <laughs> Does he the narrate greatest them? thing like, ever? Like it's a tutorial. No, I, well, you know what? I don't. I don't know how well he narrates them because he doesn't know what to call anything. Yeah, but he he just kind of has all these weird facial expressions <laughs> as he's coloring, coloring things in. It's the greatest. He got like, a lot of love, love the other day on on uh, Instagram for. World Down Syndrome Day. Did he? I'm not on the yeah. gram. Oh, yeah. Aww. You had getting lots of shout outs and um, lots of pictures and you. hugs and kisses. I'm, and I'm telling you, that boy, that boy is pretty awesome. I, I just, yeah. it's so funny because, so he has several different aides. And uh, one, one aide in particular sends me videos of what he does at school because he can't, I mean, I don't have any idea. And it's hilarious. You would think he, Seth, and, I, and I, I'm so jealous, he sees himself as a gift to everybody. 
And so he'll go up and answer a question and then want to high five. And it doesn't matter if the kids want to high five. He yeah. will high five all of them on his way back yeah. to the to the, to yeah, the chair. Yeah, we use a little bit of that. Yes. He'll give bro hugs even to women. It's fantastic. So anyway, thank you. I don't know what got us on that. But Timothy, we got a couple <laughs> of things we need to talk about. First of all, yeah, yeah. registration is closing for this shindig, the invection, the, the conference, the inference um, of, uh, of people What's who the op- are hanging on by a thread. Is it a con pro preference? Yeah. Amateur inch? I don't, I don't have any idea. But um, anyway, we've talked about it for the last couple of episodes. This is the last we're going to mention it because we got to start nailing, nailing stuff down. But it's in yeah, yeah. Nashville. It's second week in May. Um, it's paid for if you can get here. And it's for people who uh, deeply are in the middle of struggling with whether or not to stay in some sort of vocational ministry or ministry adjacent ministry or whatever. And we've got room for 18 folks. Uh, email us at hello at voxpodcast.com. We will send you the link. And we're using the link to try to help kind of discern who are the people that most need this. We did get a wonderful question from one of our faithful listeners about, hey, why are you doing this just for people who are in ministry? Doesn't that sort of reinforce this have and have not? You know, this, stuff we've the, talked this, against for so long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that you have full-time ministers versus everybody else. And we hate that. Right. Why would you do something just for those people? And I don't know how you'd answer that, Tim. What, what I would say, first of all, we hear a lot from those people about, is it possible to reform the system? Is it worth staying in and fighting, even if you have all of these personal doubts yourself? So we hear a lot of those folks. Uh, but, but secondly, we're test driving whether or not this is something that would be helpful for everybody else. Right. Um, we're, Tim and I are not... Um, uh, professional gatherers of people. And uh, so we're or interested psychics. in or, or psychics or doctors, even though we sometimes play doctors on television. Uh, but <laughs> but we don't. Um, so we're, we're trying to see if this is something uh, that we can pull off and do it in a really healthy, unconventional, conventional voxology kind of way with this group. And if so, if that's something that's super helpful, we would we would want to open that up to people who've been hurt by the church or process church trauma or how to re-engage with the church. Absolutely. So for us, it's not an either or. For us, is this is the first step to see if uh, if this approach has something to it or not. Anything you want to say to that, my friend? Yeah, I got three things. One, Whoa. Um, Whoa. this idea of being a home for the spiritually homeless. We do have a large listener base that is in vocational ministry. And a lot of them are feeling spiritually homeless, despite the fact that they are, you know, technically in a yep. quote unquote home, spiritual home. Yep. Um, and that is a big crisis too. We have heard so much from those people and we've heard the trauma that they've gone through. And the grant that we were given was specifically for this because it's something that we have talked about and this yeah, very good. particular trauma. And three, as the most Whoa. cynical Christian that there is. I'm speaking about myself. Um, no, can I can I can I pause you right there? Yeah. Can, can I? I'm, I'm sorry. I'm going to let you finish, but 
I just have to right, underscore. Kanye. Yeah, George Bush hates white people. That's the first thought. <laughs> the second thought <laughs> is that Beyonce should have won. But the third thought. Third thought. <laughs> is that is that Tim lets out exactly 12% of his cynicism on the podcast. If you get a shot of a shot or two of whiskey into this man and get him around hey, certain people, it right. is like you're not even like he's underselling the cynicism uh, about this. So please go ahead. I'm sorry. As it's someone true. who's incredibly cynical, comma. As somebody who you only know 12% of their cynicism, um, I think the dichotomy of us versus them with um, the way that we've lamented about it with people in leadership that have created too much of a barrier between um, who they are and, and the people that are in the pews or the seats, um, I, I think that system is broken. And, um, and I don't want to keep, I, I want to have hope for the church and I don't want to keep, um, railing against or just commenting on the brokenness of the leadership system. And so I don't want there to be an us versus them. I don't want there to be a hurt congregate and a, um, abusive pastor or, or vice versa. Um, yeah abusive congregates to pastors who are trying to love and shepherd a community. So I think things like this can help. I, I you know, again, not psychic, not a doctor off of TV, but the, <laughs> the idea that we could help, um, I don't know. I just think there's a lot of positive things. I, the person that the, the pushback, I totally understand. And I yeah. can see how that might look where it's like, you guys are partnering with the system. Like, you guys have been talking about creating this safe space for all of us. Why are you wasting your efforts and your time and, and money on yeah. partnering with this system that we've pushed back on so much, but I don't think it's that. Yeah. It's the long and short of it. Well, first of all, I've never heard you speak in um, three points. That was the first time ever I've heard you say first, second, and third. That's part and of the so problem with pastors that I have. Except in reference... <laughs> Except no alliteration and no baseball. three points. Yeah. Right? So all that is to say, we yes, we totally understand why, why some of you would be like, hey, this feels weird. But I also feel like part of our commitment to the church and its renewal is rethinking our thinking about how this sucker works. Yeah. And um, it would be That's interesting a great segue someday. to the interview. <laughs> yes. Oh, my goodness. Rethinking your thinking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's talk about our interview because I don't know I don't know what's happening. Our PR budget has just gone through the roof. <laughs> we are landing actual like scholars and well, we did establish uh, a new exciting. HR PR person this morning. We um, did a, a head of relations is right. I think the phrase that you <laughs> that you that you use to nominate this person. Right. Head of relations. And however you want to understand that. Um, but today, this is this is just another... First of all, he's a friend of Gombas. So, I mean, holy moly. Right there, we're already in. But Nijay right. um, uh, Gupta has written... He's been a, a scholar I've been following for a while. Um, I've got several of his books. He just wrote a book uh, called Tell Her Story. It's about how women led and uh, ministered in the early church, and it is fantastic. 
It is fantastic. And it's really, as you'll see in the interview, he's super engaging. Uh, the book is super accessible. I'm sorry I'm saying super so much, but it's just true. It, it is super, super accessible. And there's great scholarship in it. Uh, but for those of you who aren't sort of academic people, and you're like, I just don't buy the whole complementarian thing, but I couldn't yeah. put Bible verses to that. This is a great place to start. He, he is summarizing a just a boatload of scholarship um, that, and does a really good job with it. And um, as it turns out, he and I could be twin brothers. We're not sure, but you'll see <laughs> what I mean. There was, there was a lot of energy, at least on my end. Um, yeah. when, before the interview, he gave us a six in terms of his excitement for it out of 100. Uh, no, I said it was out of, out of 10. 10. And then after the interview, he gave us an eight and a half That's for the right. quality of the interview. And the fact that we were asking him on air those questions, I'm sure, had nothing to do Correct. with his answers. I'm sure those were just totally authentic answers. <laughs> but, but the more friends of Gombas that we can meet, the better. Yeah. And so this is, a, this is an FOT no, this is a fog, F-O-G, a friend of Gombas, not an F-O-T, yeah. a friend of Tim. It's a friend of Gombas. I'm curious, too. I'm curious when people listen to this. Um, again, and I didn't bring this up in the interview because I brought up in the last couple about that one question we got about having to be a scholar to um, you know, approach. Why do I have to have a doctor to understand or approach the Bible? I think yep. that's a great question that keeps um, persisting through a lot of these topics. And... I, I would love to hear people's questions, especially non-academic mm. folks that hear all this, um, how you process it or how it, how it lands with you or how it affects the way you think or approach um, theology or Jesus in this way. Because I, I do think there's something to this idea of, and I'm speaking just on my own behalf, to the, the fact that the Bible is mysterious and that it is partnered with the human brain. Mm -hmm. Um, and because of that, it, it brings in a lot of things and he kind of touches on some of that stuff, which I think yeah. is really interesting. Um, but I'm always really curious to the listener out there. That's just like, why, like this makes so much sense to me. How did we get here and, and yeah. kind of what your reaction or approach is to that information? Yep. Yep. That's so good, dude. So yeah, we think it's a absolutely great interview and um, we're stoked to host Dr. Gupta on our sweet podcast. So hope you enjoy. As always, like, rate, subscribe if you haven't. That just helps our algorithmic overlords notice us and pay attention. And if you've not, not like paid attention to our YouTube page, I've always wanted to say, hey guys, smash that subscribe button. Thanks. All right, Timothy, hit it, baby. It's going already. Well, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> we are delighted to have, not only is this person an amazing scholar, He's written commentaries. I just bought one of his other popular books on the 15 most important New Testament words. This guy, if it, and, and you only see this if you're watching on YouTube, this guy is one of the best looking New Testament scholars out there. Um, he's just written a book called um, Tell Her Story, um, right? 
That's right. That's the book. Okay. I just, you, you had to look like, <laughs> like, like that was news to you for a second. And I was like, no, that's, I, did? I think that's, <laughs> I think, I think that's your book. Um, <laughs> and DJ, we're so glad. We're so glad to meet you. Word on the street, my friend, is that you and I, besides um, being very handsome gentlemen, have a couple of connections, and one of those mm. is the great Reverend Dr. Gombus. Tell us, yes, tell us yes. a little bit about your good friend Tim Gombus. Tim and I go way back. We're fellow New Testament scholars, but I know Tim from you know many many centuries ago when he worked at Cedarville. Um, I, I know his ask, wife. Is that where you guys met? I know. I know the Cedarville era. I'm from Ohio. Yeah. I'm a I'm a Heartland boy. Uh, born and raised in Ashton, Ohio. So I already had been to Cedarville in, in three col my college days. And I was Hold one on, of the pagans. Ashland. I'm from Hold Ashland. On. I was one of the pagans that went to a non-Christian college. So my high school friends, there was like the non-Christian oh. pagan uh, people. Yeah. And then there were the Christian college people. Um, so we would visit these colleges like Cedarville or Grace College uh, nearby and um, get, and get a little bit of flack, flack for that. Um, but yeah. how do I know Tim? I love his uh, his work, his scholarship, um, but really his personality. Like he's that, you know, whenever we're hiring for jobs, uh, we talk about the beer test, meaning would I want to have a beer with this person and talk <laughs> theology, talk sports, talk movies. And Tim is uh, is the best uh, beer test person I know of, probably. In fact, we were just at SBL. And we had like a three-hour lunch. It was a very long lunch. Um, and we just had the best time ever. We ate tacos. We um, Oh, yeah. But his scholarship, his wife, uh, Sarah, is a good friend. And she also, I've worked with her professionally. She's a, a marketer, publicist kind of person. Mm -hmm. So he's, and his family, he's just got a stellar, he's got a stellar everything. Um and I've used his books before, his textbooks, like his book on uh, cruciformity, Paul and weakness, power and weakness. Yep. Um, yep. So I'm an admirer. I'm a friend. I'm a fan. All those things nice. about Tim. <laughs> nice. Well, it, I know you don't know this, but we have Tim on regularly. I know. I do know that. Have explored some of the quirkiness that is Tim Gombus, and it's fascinating. It's We've had extended <laughs> conversations about how much he hates people talking to him when he walks, uh, about his New Year's resolutions to not point, uh, unless okay. it's with a whole hand, and to stop using contractions. Yeah. And so, yes, I, oh, wow. I would love wow. to join you for a three-hour lunch. Now, let's talk about Ashland, Ohio. I grew up in Lexington, and we okay. played Ashland yeah. in football every year. Yeah. Um, and at least when I was there, uh, we were by far the better team. I don't know if that's okay, still I'm, true. I'm not surprised. <laughs> I'm, I, I don't know that that's true. But then after Ashland, you and I share another alma mater, uh, mm -hmm. the Miami, the University of Miami, or as we call it, Miami University, which is the proper, yeah. proper way. Miami of Ohio, so you don't confuse but, people. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. The tropical. And this was. The tropical paradise and of the Midwest. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> or we joke, can say we lived in Oxford. That's the better one is when you say, well, my college days. My college yes. days in Oxford. <laughs> my college days in Oxford. <laughs> my college days in, a... in Oxford. Actually, I don't were know you... what era you were there, Mike, but I was there in the Zerbiak era. So that, that gives it some Nice. Props. 
nice, um, and nice. also Roethlisberger, Ben Roethlisberger. I was there oh. uh, for those oh, two nice. eras. So there was nice. a little bit You've of, got the of best knowledgeability. Yeah, a little bit of knowledgeability with that as well. I came after the Ron Harper era and before the Zerbiak Roethlisberger era. Wow. So we had, at one point, I, ca- I have you know that I carried, we had the nation's longest non-winning football streak. <laughs> and we broke that against Bowling mm. Green. And I, along with about a dozen other people, rushed the field, tore down a goalpost, and carried it uptown <laughs> wow. through wow. the red bricks. Okay. And so I was more was... of a hockey person, broom ball, hockey. Oh. Yes, um, I didn't go to any Where, football games actually. Well, uh, well, or basketball okay. games. You, oh, 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 so oh, you missed diverged. you missed the eras, you missed the eras entirely. Although the hockey <laughs> the hockey rink is just amazing. Where, oh, yeah. Were you in a fraternity or anything? No, I my brother was. Um, he was. Um, I don't remember which one now he was in, but he he did he did that. I I didn't do that. Um, I was just a uh, um, playing video games. I guess <laughs> uh, we had a Christian house called the Rock uh, that was passed Ooh, down through course. the ages. So we were part of, of the Rock. Um, but other than that, no, I I just played a whole lot of video games. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and then though was that era? Was that Halo? Was that was that the beginning? Uh, I of think the Halo so. Era? Yeah, I think that was the beginning of that that era as well. <laughs> okay. Yeah, tail end of Goldeneye. I mean, <laughs> there it is. Oh, so good. All the millennials listening have no idea what we're talking about, but those were the days, kids. Those were, those the, were the days. days. Um, so you did you grow up in a um, Christian environment, even though you went to Ashland and Miami? No, or, I didn't. Or, my my parents. Didn't. Yeah, my parents came from India to United States in the early seventies. I was born in the late seventies, and my parents are Hindu. Um, they've been Hindu their whole life, uh, and I became a Christian through my brother, who was at Miami at the time. I was in high school, um, and he became a Christian through some friends, and he got involved with Campus Crusade for Christ, and then he would come home on the weekends and um, take me to church and. So I, um, you know, I, I became a Christian as a 16 year old and I actually wanted to wow. go to Moody Bible Institute. I have a good friend that teaches wow. there now because I, that was the only Christian college I knew of. I didn't understand what, how Christian colleges worked. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> my parents thought I was in a cult. Um, so they yes, told me I had to yes. go to a non-Christian college. So lo and behold, my brother went to Miami. I went to Miami as well. Boom. So, yeah. Nice. I love that. And were and were you like like I was? I, I was I, I I was raised in a nominally sort of Christian environment. Um and as part of that inheritance, I just sort of understood the relationships between men and women to be along the lines of men lead, women follow. Mm-hmm. Um and that men are the predominant leadership voices in the church. That was never fully explained, but it's what I saw everywhere. Was that true of you also? Absolutely. Um, Ashland is a rural town, um, some kind of Amish uh, uh, elements as well. You, we had like a hitching post in our Walmart uh, for the horses. Um, and <laughs> so amazing. kind of kind of a rural traditional environment, very much kind of red state uh, uh, politics in Ashland. Um, and then the church I went to was wonderful, absolutely beautiful community. It's a Grace Brethren church. No way! No, no, no! Hold on! 
Hold on. Dude, Ashland Grace Brethren was like yeah. that was like the like that was we were Lexington Grace Brethren and we were tiny no way. And Ashland Grace oh my Brethren gosh. was always the was always like the wow that someday we could be like them. So we were cool. Okay. <laughs> cool. We did we had puppets Clearly. ministry. We had everything. Yes. Puppets. Yes, we, we had, had puppets. puppets. Puppets ministry. We, yeah, yes. we had everything. Um, it was a wonderful environment, but just like what you said, Mike, it was a kind of place where women pastors, women preachers, women elders, um, they did showcase couples in ministry who were right. you know, working in Sunday school or helping in this area, helping in that area. Youth group, definitely wives stepped up to help out uh, and, and volunteer and support the children. So I, I'm not going to say it's this like, you know um yeah cult like environment or anything like that but it was just kind of your classic um mm-hmm. you know this these were the heydays of John Piper and Wayne Grudem um and i just took yeah. it for granted i just took it that okay if the bible says it and this is the culture this is the tradition seems to be working well nobody's complaining about it and i just yeah. kind of took it for granted and in the youth group men and women did you know led and did all kinds of stuff as students so I didn't yeah. feel any kind of yuckiness about it. Um, then I went to college. Campus Crusade operates in a very complementarian way. Women are free mm-hmm. to do a lot, but there are some restrictions there in terms of leadership. I didn't understand all of that, but I could see a little bit of it. And it was weird. But again, I just trusted these people. They know the Bible. They know theology. Uh, yeah. Then I went to seminary and I went to Gordon-Conwell, which um, oh, wow. I didn't think wow. about the male female issues, but people fall on different sides there in the faculty. Um, but I got really heavy into, uh, PCA kind of world. Um, Mm. I even went to an Orthodox Presbyterian church for a while because I wanted to prove that I was hardcore about doctrine and I didn't care that much about the men and women issue, but I wanted to be like John Piper. Um, Mm -hmm. and I feel like he wasn't that crazy at that time. Like if he's gotten a little more, (laughs) uh, extreme over time. Uh, back yeah. then, he seemed more, I don't know what, but, um, and so I i actually wrote my first systematic theology paper, open topic on why women shouldn't be pastors. Oh, and wow. I don't know why I chose that topic. I think I chose it because I had hesitations about it. And I think I needed to, to prove to myself mm. that I could stand by what these, um, you know, great men stood for and stood by. Um, so I, I wrote this paper. I, I I didn't put in the heavy research, but I just got the talking points down. Um, yeah. I could say the disciples were men and the priests were men and the prophets were mostly yeah. men and the kings were men and Jesus was a man and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And then, um, you know, the guy I was interning for at a PCA church, he was also a professor and he he saw me mingling with women master divinity students. And what? he warned me. He warned me and said – uh, be careful. These women are going to tear down your theology and they're going to bring you down. Um, wow. and I persisted in spending time with them, including the woman I was going to marry, Amy, my wife. Uh, and I'm like, they, they seem like they love Jesus. <laughs> they, they respect the Bible. They have a high view of scripture. Uh, Amy, uh, who I was getting to know had a similar background from, from the Midwest, mm. Fort Wayne, Indiana, went to India University, did missions work at Campus Crusade. We had a lot in common. We were on the same page when it came to our trust in the Bible and our passion for ministry. 
Um, so I went through kind of a, a period of doubt uh, of mm. whether I was really wh- whether I really fit into this um, Piper yeah. camp, kind of the precursor to the Gospel Coalition. Um, yeah. And and then I started to read scholars like Gordon Fee, Craig Keener, Ben Witherington, Linda Belleville, and uh, R.T. France, and I was like, "Gosh, these are bona fide conservatives, evangelicals." A little bit later, Richard Bauckham, uh, mm-hmm. who have really great arguments in favor of women in ministry, women as pastors, women ordained. So I actually wrote my third systematic theology paper, my last my last year of seminary, on why women must be pastors. <laughs> I got oh, a chance wow. to TA for Catherine Krager, the founder of Christians Biblical yep. Equality. She was amazing, brilliant. Yes, wow. She was a Greek wow. scholar. I did an independent study in patristic Greek with her. She has, she had, she passed, but she had an encyclopedic mm-hmm. knowledge of ancient Greek. Um, and um, what I ended up thinking is complementarian theology is kind of like a Jenga tower. And what happened to mm-hmm. me was as I studied it, I realized some of the arguments that are used are um, are kind of sleight of hand or um, are much messier than they appear to be. So for example... Yeah. Adam was created first that that makes him more special or, or of a mm-hmm. higher importance. But then I think RT France said, but then God ends up choosing often the runt like David or the yeah. second like yeah. Isaac or Jacob. Um, and yeah. that takes a piece out of that Jenga tower. So what ended up happening is this edifice, which I call an edifice starts to deteriorate and erode. And it wasn't that I just jumped ship from one thing to the next. I, I started to, to doubt and question this edifice. So, for example, yeah. you have all these texts like First Timothy and things, but then Piper creates this whole list of things that pe- women can and can't do in the church, this exhaustive list. How did right. you get from Adam and Eve to that? Um, yeah. And then just things that you start to question that don't make sense. If women are more gullible than men, why let them teach anybody why let them teach women why let them teach children it would yep. make sense they should only the teach mission. men because in that That's philosophy right. men can actually know better mm. um they shouldn't teach anybody there's plenty mm. of men to teach everybody let's just have all the men do all the teaching if that's where you're going with that um yeah. so some of those things started to erode that edifice and i started mm-hmm. to see scripture differently um, so the journey really happened in seminary and, and then I've just been, been building on it and it just kind of came to a climax in this book. How long you have you been wife, You met your wife at seminary? Yeah, we, uh, she came in to seminary my second year. She had done some missions work. She'd done some college ministry work. She'd worked at a church. Um, and she really wanted to just explore her calling. You know, can I be a pastor? Cause that's what I feel like God is calling me to and um, she had some support and some critique, and she needed to explore mm. that further. And we had a chance to start exploring that together as we connected in seminary. That's cool. That's awesome. How long have you been at Northern? This is my third year, um, but I've been okay. teaching for for over ten years. Yeah. Yeah. Where did you Where did you get your doctorate? I, I know I could look all this up, but I'm. But I want yeah. I want to know. When I finished at Gordon-Conwell, um, a lot of my professors studied in the UK. Uh, our friend Tim Gombas mm-hmm. studied in the UK. Yes, um, yes. 
And I was a super fan of N.T. Wright. Uh, I still am a fan, but I was a super fan back then. And I knew he was the Bishop of Durham. So I wanted to go to Durham. Uh, Jimmy Dunn, a big, uh, big name yep. scholar that I wanted to just, you know, fall in his shadow and be healed. Uh, <laughs> uh, I knew he was retired, but I just wanted a chance to meet him, which I did um, while I was there. Mm. Um, so I went to Durham to study with John Barclay, who's now considered, you know, the greatest oh, yeah. New Testament scholar oh, alive. Yeah. Sorry, Tom. Oh, wow. <laughs> sorry, sorry, Bishop Tom. Um, <laughs> and Stephen Barton, another New Testament scholar. So I worked with both of them. But, you know, at the time I was wow. there, Durham had just this, you know, all-star team of scholars. And mm. um, I had three wonderful years there. Fellow students, you might know people like uh, Wesley Hill, Jonathan Linebaugh. Yeah. Ben Blackwell, nice. really spectacular group of colleagues there. That's awesome. What yeah. what was the focus of your dissertation? Oh man, it's one of those esoteric academic uh, Bring it. dissertations. Bring it, yeah, yes. So I'll give you the title to kind of just give my nerd credentials, then I'll actually talk about what it was about. So the title was "Worship That Makes Sense to Paul." The title was uh, uh, a literary and sociolinguistic approach to Paul's non-atonement cultic metaphors. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so like re like redemption or adoption? Uh, like temple, like temple, sacrificed priesthood. Anytime he uses metaphors like that, but not talking about uh, oh, I got it. Aton atonement, like your body's a temple or offer your yeah, body's yeah. sacrifices. Oh, that's good. The whole purpose of that, um, dude, that's like not esoteric him. at all. I think we've all we've all. Well, <laughs> you know, when you when you when, when you use the phrase cognitive linguistics, people's eyes start to glaze <laughs> over. But the whole point is what I learned from that experience is Paul didn't think of theology in boxes like Christology and mm. pneumatology. He really conversed and thought in terms of master metaphors. And in fact, humans in general construct their their whole world around metaphors like family or like mm. battle. Um, and, and in the ancient yeah. world, it was common to do that around cult. So how did Paul process suffering through these metaphors? How did he process unity? How did he process mm. perseverance? Mm. How did he process faith and weakness and strength and power? That's that's the gist of it. Um, they are load bearing vehicles of expression mm. and understanding and theology. And so, mm. you know, the, the, the kind of call to action is we need to be really thoughtful about, number one, using metaphors because they're not just fun. They're also constructive. And we need to know what those metaphors are actually doing when we use them. Mm. Yeah. When you when you, you when you see Paul using the metaphor of head and body when it comes mm -hmm. to like male female relations, is that operating in a similar way? That he has a kind yeah, of controlling and, and metaphor over that. I think it is, and you know the importance of that, and it comes up all over the place. I just was talking to a group about Ephesians four. Um, the point of that is really cooperation, um, mm. and not opposition right mm. the body has to uh to work together and and each part is is important in the part that it does i do think somatic we call them somatic images are important of body 
because everybody can relate to them and everybody can relate to when something's not working. When I was doing my PhD, there was a period of about two weeks where all of my taste buds quit. I don't know why it, they weren't burned or anything. I just lost all taste and I didn't know if they'd it'd ever come back. And it was just amazing just to, to be so afraid that I could never taste mm. again. I had no idea mm. what salt tasted like sugar. Uh, it gives you just a glimpse of like, okay, even these teeny tiny taste buds can transform your world when they're not working. Yeah. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All these key metaphors are, are very important. So when, when Paul says the husband is head of the wife, that's where I was driving to with the whole metaphor. Um, yeah. Is he, is he using that in terms of authority or control? Is he using that in terms of source and You're origin? diving right in, in Mike, aren't of- you? <laughs> Well, I mean, that we was took, a sharp quarter the... turn. <laughs> we took, no, we well, can go there. We but, can go there. We can go but there. It's, but it's related. Right. But it's related to your dissertation. I mean, did you? It is. Just take it a is. moment and appreciate yeah. like the weaving together of your mm-hmm. dissertation back onto the topic. For sure. For sure. Um, <laughs> this is tough. This is tough because scholars cross swords over the word for head, kephale, yes. and how it's used as a metaphor in the ancient world. We can't presume that people then use it exactly the way that we use it now. Um, So when we say I'm the head of an organization, we mean the dominant um, controlling authority. Right. Um, Now, in the ancient world, head was used as a metaphor, but we don't get the sense it was used as a, a, a metaphor for boss as much as for representative. So when they were mm. distributing something to all the tribes of Israel and they named somebody ahead of the tribe, it's not necessarily saying they're the king of that tribe or chief of that tribe. It's saying they're the mm. rep of that tribe. Mm. Um, so uh, when, when, when it says the husband is ahead of the wife, um, th- there are reasons we can look to outside of those texts to say that that didn't mean that they were the Lord over their wife. Hmm. Uh, I, I, I lean towards someone like Gordon Fee who says they, they often play the role of representing their family, including their wife. So for example, someone knocks on the door. Um, it's not the wife that's going to open the door. Often it's the husband as kind of the public facing figure. Um, hmm. is going to do that. So, uh, because of the legal, political, and social power that a paterfamilias, head of household, husband has, he's going to often play a nurturing role to the family hmm. um, in the same way that, let's say in America, let's say a woman marries uh, an undocumented immigrant. Um, she's going to have more leverage in society than he is. And she might be the one answering the door rather than him just because of her, you know, stature in society. So that it was that way for husbands at the same time, um, that didn't necessarily presume that he had controlling power over her. This gets into my book and this gets into the weeds a little bit. Um, yeah, my book, no, Tell a Story, go. but I want to I want to give you uh, I don't know if you guys have read it yet, but I want to give you a taste yes. of something I learned as I was doing research is in the Roman world. There were actually two two legal forms of marriage. One was called uh, manus marriage and one was called sine manu marriage. 
And uh, manus marriage means the wife agrees to be in, in the legal control of her husband. Hmm. And she becomes kind of an, uh, a legal, almost employee to, to him. Uh, and there's also called something called sine manu. Manu means hand. So within his hand. And sine manu means not within his hand. And that means she's going to marry and enter his household. But she actually uh, falls under the um, uh, uh, pater headship of her father still. Oh, that wow. means in some ways she's disconnected from right. the, her husband's authority. Now, this is interesting because Roman historians, not Christian scholars, not Christian discussion, Roman historians like Richard Saller, leading scholars, say that um, in the first century uh, in the Roman Empire, sine manu marriage, where a woman is not under the controlling authority of her husband, was the most common form of wow. marriage. Now, what does that mean? That means she has her own money to control. She might have her own employees. She might have her own slaves. Um, and there can be kind of kind of power wars between the two families because her father is getting involved in that. Right. I think what's happening in these um, household codes where he's saying, be submissive, be submissive. I don't think he's saying, you know, women don't leave the house and make sure you're pregnant and all that. I think he's saying, um, I don't want power wars between families. I want a Christian household as, as best as possible to be a cooperative harmonious place. Hmm. Now, what's really interesting about the household codes, and I learned this from Gordon Fee and another guy named Marjorie McDonald, is when a woman whose husband has died and there's no male adult in the house, like her children, either she doesn't have children or children are, are young, um, she legally takes over authority over the household. She becomes domina, female lord hmm. of the house. Um, and in that circumstance, if she's hearing the household code, she is actually going to apply it to her ruling authority, hmm. mm -hmm. governing authority mm -hmm. le legally, um, yep. because the household codes, I don't know if you guys, I'm sure you guys know this, but maybe listeners don't, they don't come from the old Testament. They don't come from Jewish society. They come right. from Aristotle yep. and they were adopted by Roman political ideology as the infrastructure for Roman houses. And so the Christians were saying, we're going to go with this. And we're going to try to Christianize it, but it's actually coming from the emperor. And so uh, they're kind of saying, let's just follow the legal principles of the day, but let's infuse it. Um, let's mm -hmm. alter the DNA to put Christ, uh, you know, put Christ's blood into this, um, into this yes. body. Uh, I say that to say then um, the Christians seem to be going with the, the Roman legal system. And that includes women ruling their own households uh, when there's no husband. So I, I named some statistics in my book. One out of every four households had a female head of household yes. because they were a widow or um, other reasons. Uh, yeah. And and also I uh, came across another statistic. A third of all property in the Roman Empire was owned by women. Hmm. Um, that means we're looking at a different picture uh, when we yes. look at – women in the household. Um, and and one thing that Fee points out is in Colossians chapter four, Paul mentions a woman named Nympha and her house, meaning her house church. Mm -hmm. uh, we can kind of take for granted that she is a widow or single. And we can also, I think, take for granted that she is 
uh, mater familias, mother of her household, mm -hmm. single mother of her household. Uh, then Fee and McDonald say she actually will put herself into the position of the father, husband, master in the household code because she has that legal uh, power. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so it's not really about gender at that point. It's about system structure and coherence. Mm. So, there, you know, in my book, I talk about how scholars say the Roman household was more like a like a small organization or business than it was kind of a nuclear family with, you know, two kids and a cat. Um, so as a small business, <laughs> Paul was actually mostly concerned with harmony and efficiency and respect. Uh, he wasn't so concerned with exactly who is doing what. Yeah. Um, we know that because yeah. he's commending these women who are um, leading churches. Nympha, I refer to as the most important Christian you've never heard of because yes. she's our only evidence in the New Testament for a single female head of a house church. That's a pretty powerful yeah. image. Yeah. And and one of the arguments uh, you make is that the, this, the head of a house church would function as a shepherd slash overseer slash pastor, even if they didn't have yes. those titles. So when people say, hey, are there any examples of female pastors or elders? Um, yeah. How do you respond? Yeah, well, pastors, the term wasn't really used as a ministry title in the first century. So if you look at Ephesians chapter four, verse 11, Paul refers to apostles and prophets, evangelists, teachers, and past pastors and teachers. Pastor, in my mind, is an umbrella term for the guardian or shepherd of a community. And I would put under that umbrella overseers and diakonoi, which get translated deacon. I came up with my own terms. Uh, yeah. ministry provider, kind of like doctors today are medical providers. So ministry yep. provider, yep. which means they're about service, but it means they have training expert and expertise anyway. So I actually put that under that umbrella. So then you have to, so then you say nobody, no male is actually called a pastor in the Bible and no female is <laughs> called a pastor. Cause I think it's a category. So mm. then we bump down and we say, were there women diakonoi and were there women Episcopoi, Episcopoi means bishop or overseer. Literally, the term means supervisor hmm. uh, or overseer, right? Hmm. And so that's a really basic term for someone who's in charge of something, hmm. right? Now, if a woman is the head of a house church, she's going to she's going to fit the category of episcopos, overseer, supervisor. Because look, if you look at the qualifications for an overseer in First Timothy and Titus, it's someone who manages well their own household. Yeah. What does Paul yeah. say to young widows in First Timothy five fourteen? He says, yeah. "Women should get married, get married, have children, and oikadespateo, be good lords of your house." He doesn't say, "Follow the lordship of your husband." He mm. says, "Be good lords of your house." Either he means be co-lords of your house, which I think is possible. Or I think more likely he means whether you're married or not, be good masters of your house. Hmm. Now, if he's saying that, he's already crediting the possibility of women being good masters. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, that word despot, oika despoteo, mm -hmm. where we get the word despot from, is a term that's often used in the Greek Bible for 
the sovereignty of God, the lordship mm. of God. So he's really telling these women, be good masters of your house, be good masters of your slaves. Um, now, if he's doing that, I, I think it's ridiculous to say that he wouldn't also say to them, if there are Christians in your house, you're leading them spiritually also, because that's what a master does in the Roman world. They're spiritual leader. They are political leader. They are household leader and so forth. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, uh, there's a book that I reference a lot in my uh, Tell Her Story by uh, a scholar named Roger Gehring called House Church and Mission, where he says Paul and the apostles actually targeted household uh, masters, mm -hmm. they're called householders, to be Christians and to be Christian leaders because they, number one, already have leadership experience managing a household. They have a place where they can hold a congregation because uh, they have a you know family room if you if you'd like. Uh, they can host mm -hmm. a meal, which was central to the Christian gathering. Right. And they command, they already command respect. They're usually people of respect in the community. And so it, you know, it makes sense. And we know there are women who have those roles like Lydia. So here, if you look at the book of Acts, Paul goes to Philippi looking for Jews. He finds this group of women. He preaches to Lydia. She becomes a believer and her household, which is the way you would signal that she's the head of that household. And they're baptized. They become Christian. Mm -hmm. The apostles go on the adventures. Then they get out of prison. And then where do they go? They go to Lydia's house. Yeah. Why? Because they know that she's going to gather Christians in her house. She becomes mm -hmm. probably de facto, immediately de facto leader uh, of that house. It doesn't say that, but putting the pieces together, how do they know to go to her house? Um, yeah. How do they know the believers were gathering there? Well, that's where the believers were. I mean, there she has the space. She has the chops. Um, she she has direct apostolic teaching. And then what's interesting is if you move over to the letter of the Philippians, you have uh, two women named Yodi and Syntyche. How did they become Christian? Two women that aren't mentioned in Acts through Lydia. I mean, the, uh, it's possible they, you know, uh, watched a YouTube video or something of an evangelist, but chances are uh, they uh, they were preached to by Lydia. And so um, she's getting the word out there. Uh, when we put those pieces together with Nympha, uh, with Prisca as what we feel like is kind of a co-leadership of a household church, um, we start to get a different picture than mm -hmm. men lead, women follow. Yeah. Where does the breakdown happen like in history? So... I'm is Paul is Paul's language a reacting to like patriarchal society and using words and terminology that people understood there because it was the systems that they understood and then do we just inherit a belief system through misunderstood language does that make sense like have we yeah. built yes. this kind yeah. of structure Can I jump in That's on that good. real quick Yeah uh well, one of the things, Tim, I um, I was just going to ask that's similar to this, is is that uh, uh, Nija, your your chapter on how churches were organized, and so they borrowed from synagogue, they borrowed from um, Greek kind of public legal gatherings, mm -hmm, and they mm -hmm. borrowed from the household, and in that combination, mm -hmm. there arose the church. How so? So. 
I want to point out that section of your book to people because I thought it was brilliant. Um, because there isn't a one-on-one correspondence. It was a mix of all of those, um, right? That a mix of yeah. all of those elements that formed formed a church. Then back to Tim's question: If that's true, um, then then where did the breakdown happen from? How household, public gathering, synagogue would have been understood in the first century to now having a, a head pastor and a uh, board of elders and, uh, you know, whatever else. Right. Uh, great questions. I mean, we could spend hours upon hours talking about this. Let's I'll try to be concise. Let's get some tacos and some beers yeah. and let's do it. Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, you okay. pay and you got a deal. I'm in. Um, uh, okay. Easy. So let's talk about, pa- let's talk about patriarchy. Um, patriarchy is, has been around for a long time, but it's hard to, uh, what we shouldn't do is assume it's always the same everywhere. Um, patriarchy means uh, privileges and rule of the father, with father of the household, which expands into society. Um, but you can't just call everything you see patriarchy. It, it comes in different forms. It has sometimes it has limitations. Sometimes it's multidimensional and complex. Um, patriarchy has been around since the beginning of civilization, but it's only been in our consciousness as an ideology in more recent history. That's important to know. So if you say, uh, was Paul aware of patriarchy? He wasn't. Uh, In the same way that um, we can talk about race in in very sophisticated ways ideologically uh, that that people didn't in the 19th century, even though they clearly had racism, right? Um, So... Paul lived in a in a patriarchal world, but he wouldn't have ever been able to name it as such. That's important because if you say was Paul misogynist or, you know, um, we could talk about things that people do in the ancient world with, while still being aware that they didn't have the modern categories and language uh, to be able to understand it. But let me say a couple things. One is the Bible is complicated because it's walking us through real human life in history while also giving us insight into who God is and what God wants. Mm. And you can't, and there's this entanglement there, but neither does the Bible give us what God wants free of human uh, mistakes Right, mm. the Bible's full of a lot of human mistakes, Uh-oh. in the sense that humans what? may do bad things. <laughs> what? Oh, <okay>. <laughs> humans sorry. do uh. bad things. <clears throat> yeah, like you know, yeah. I don't want to open up a can of worms there, but you know, <laughs> people that make sinful choices. Uh, l- l- let's just use an easy example: slavery. Slavery is wrong. It was wrong then. It's wrong now. And yet, the Bible seems to be okay with slavery. Right? Tries to make right. limitations, but okay with it. That's human culture. Right. Saying, hey, we got slavery. Let's keep going. And God, uh, what happens in the Bible is that God is revealing what he wants, but he's trying to get down to our level to explain it to us slowly Hmm. and carefully so that we can actually learn how to change for ourselves. And scholars sometimes call this divine accommodation. Mm -hmm. Um, So 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 when you have that, then it's going to be messy because is patriarchy biblical or is egalitarianism biblical the problem is the bible has patriarchy and 
I believe God has this vision that he gives us for equality and mutuality and freedom and women heroes. Um, so being able to think through both sides of that is crucial so that we don't just point to, hey, there were women, there were male priests only. That doesn't tell us the whole story is, is the challenge there. Yeah. Um, so uh, what I tell my students is um, we actually have to use a philosophy when we read scripture. We call this hermeneutics. I know you guys know that, but everybody knows that term. So hermeneutics means that we're going to have a particular lens to look at scripture so we don't justify genocide, so we don't justify mm. slavery, so we don't justify racism, right? All of us inherently filter scripture knowing that some things are wrong, yeah. right? We're, we're just going to do that. Bible. Even if they're found in the Bible. So for example, you know, the apostles say, don't braid your hair, right? And there probably are some hard core, core people out there who try to <laughs> follow that prohibition. But most of us oh. know th that braiding your hair is not actually a problem. It must be what it symbolizes. And then we try to avoid that, right? Um, when it comes to women, I tell my students, we need to know what God wanted in the beginning, which we call protology. Uh, how was creation meant to be? In, in Genesis, we see this beautiful relationship between Adam and Eve, uh, cooperative, co-ruling over the earth. And at the end, again, we see a beautiful image of many tongues, many languages, uh, people worshiping the Lord together. And there's a bunch of crap in between where people do terrible things. Um, yeah. But we sometimes get glimpses of the ideal that God wants. Uh, yeah. So one theologian calls us breakthrough moments. And I think Deborah is a breakthrough moment. I think Mary, the mother of Jesus, is a breakthrough moment. I think Junie is a breakthrough moment. Not that we should only have women pastors, but definitely that we shouldn't only have men pastors, right? Yeah. I think the vision is something like we see in, in Priscilla and Aquila of no-nonsense, gifted leaders working together shoulder to shoulder for the good of the kingdom of God. Let's do away with the drama and see how amazing men and women are in ministry serving both men and women. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, so if you were to look at the complementarian system, um, mm -hmm. what would you say, it's kind of outside of it now, what would you say is one of its strongest arguments? Um, and what would you say is mm -hmm. one of its weakest? I mean, the, the strongest argument is... Um, probably the appeals to creation um not only the creation texts but then you know yeah. the statements made in 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 the corinthian texts and then first timothy uh, mm -hmm. and 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 i um you know i count complementarian some complementarian theologians as people i greatly respect uh and and feel like they're great biblical exegetes um i think they're at their best when they are um yeah, doing doing careful exegesis of the text, looking at the Greek terminology, trying to understand the theological dimensions of what the biblical writers are trying to say, and not going beyond what is written in the text. Um, not mm -hmm. not extrapolating yeah. to guesswork on you know, hey, you know, they can't. Um, Can I ask a woman directions? Yes. Yeah. Right. Well, I remember John Piper, and I don't want. Sorry, John, I'm picking on John here. But, uh, you know, I remember him saying, like, um, a, a woman can do urban planning because you're looking at the effect of her work, but not looking at her directly. 
but it, but if you have to look at her directly, then then you're you know to a woman in yeah. authority like a female police officer, or whatever. Then that was going to be where the problem happens from a Christian perspective. And I, that 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 feels like it's just gone beyond yeah. uh, what Scripture yeah. is saying. Yeah. Love, love yeah. the urban planners out there. Nothing against the urban planners. <laughs> <laughs> well, that would be the weakness then, right? Where well, the weakness is, uh, you know, I may get some emails on this about this, but the weakness I think is, I think all complementarians have to admit they have to admit that somewhere hidden underneath or even exposed is a statement that women are lesser than. Yeah. It, it can't be otherwise, given the arguments they make about First Timothy. They mm. are in an inferior form. Mm. There's nothing that makes them superior in that theology in any way, even another way, other than maybe they can have children, right? There's nothing that really makes them superior. Maybe some people will say mm. uh, they're they are more tender-hearted, you know, whatever. But Scripture actually says all Christians need to be tender-hearted. All Christians need to be gentle. All Christians need mm. to be manly, which is the Greek word for courageous. So, I love it. Um, so scripture doesn't genderize uh, 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 virtues. It doesn't say mm -hmm. women should be sweet and charming. Mm -hmm. Men should be rough and tough and hairy. Um, uh, I, so what I would say is I, I, if you're going to sustain this argument, you have to admit, you absolutely have to admit that women are in some way inferior. And that's, oh, that's icky. And I don't want to say that. I think you have to if you're going to say, because what I want to say to them is what's the what's actually going to happen if a woman is on the elder board? What's going to happen? Mm. And it can't be nothing, but that's just the way it is. I don't like it's a divine mystery arguments. The Trinity is divine mystery, but when it, is, it deals with ethics, yeah, I need to know why. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Because if I'm talking to my children and I tell them to do something or not do something and they say why, I need to have an answer if it's yeah. ethical. Right? If they feel a twinge of conviction of, of right and wrong. How can I not, as a Christian, explain to them the rationale? Not just say, because I say so. Yeah, there's no, yeah. I, the Bible said that doesn't, no, no. Otherwise, we're going to perpetuate lots of horrible things. Yeah. Um, there has to be a rule of faith. And I use that in a very mm -hmm. general way. But there has to be a rule of faith yeah. that's guiding those things. So then if they say, yes, women are inferior, then I can come back and talk about Deborah and Mary, the mother of Jesus. Why would God put the most precious being in the world, Jesus Christ, in the hands of a single mother? Like that was profoundly dangerous mm -hmm. when mm -hmm. he should have had it the other way around where Joseph lives and Mary dies. Like this should have been yeah. that way. If yeah. if women are inferior intellectually, uh, didactically, right? Because what I, what I say yeah. in my book and what I tell people is – from let's say ages 13, we don't want Joseph died. Let's say ages 13 to 30, Jesus has some questions when he looks in the mirror. Who am I? Mm. Who's he going to talk to? We don't meet an Uncle Frank or a Grandpa Bob. We just have Mary. And yeah. we know from Luke chapter 1, the Magnificat, that she is theologically brilliant. Mm -hmm. Oh man! I refer yes. to her biblical knowledge as scribal. She is as mm. good as the scribes. And she's feisty yeah. too. You know, the wedding at Cana... She's not afraid to speak up. And why would God do that if in some way he's going to say later on women shouldn't be in the room where it happens? That's that's yeah. doesn't make a lot of sense. To so me. good. DJ, you passed the beer test, my friend. We could <laughs> we could do this. We'll we'll honor your time. But my goodness. And, and just for those who are listening to this, I, I literally cannot recommend his book 
more. It is so good, particularly for those of you who are, you have suspicions that the men lead, women follow thing isn't right, but you're not familiar enough with the Bible to understand why. This is a great, accessible, with loads of scholarship on the back end, but very accessible uh, intro into some of the people and patterns we would look at to say, no, 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 we think God has a, a much more egalitarian vision. And he's expressed that quite clearly, if we're paying attention. Um, Nijay, where, where can people find you online? Where are you most active? I follow you on Twitter, and so you, I, I see your tweets. Is that where you're most, uh, most outgoing? Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm on Twitter. I would say I encourage people to listen to, I co-host a podcast with Dr. AJ Swoboda called Slow Theology, where we just dig into messy faith, messy Christianity. What do we do with all the scandals cool. in the church? Uh, what do we do when we're fed up with the bad things that Christians do, uh, including ourselves? Um, and the stuff in the Bible we can't explain or don't understand. So join us uh, with Slow Theology. Um, and, uh, yeah, Twitter, Twitter and Facebook, um, is where you find me. And uh, if you're yeah. interested in seminary, Northern seminary, uh, is where you can, uh, jump into a class too. So I just want to review briefly and then ask you one more pointed question. Mm -hmm. Um, we both grew up in Ohio. We're both men <laughs> who grew up in Ohio. We both grew up in grace brethren churches that were aware of each That's other. True. Um, we both went to Miami. We were both involved with Campus Crusade. We were both neither in a fraternity. Yep. Uh, we both went to seminary. Um, we're both have turned out to be more handsome than we were when we were younger. And we both have podcasts. We're both, we both have podcasts. We're both friends. I use Riverside Gamos. too, by the way. <laughs> we use Riverside. The what question, toothpaste do you use? No, I'm just kidding. The question, yes. The question is, do you think we're related? In I, any you know, way, shape, or I, form. I'm open to I it. Wonder, I, I to wonder that. if if um, you might be the white version of me in the multiverse. Uh, you know, <laughs> oh, I... <laughs> that's, that's speaking my language on so many levels. Listen, <laughs> you are awesome. Thank you, thank you, thank you for your time with us today. We're so very grateful uh, and grateful for the book. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Uh, thank you for reading and thank you for having me on. Thank you, thank you, thank you for listening to this conversation. Voxology is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that is supported by listeners just like yourself. If you'd like to partner with us, you can do so at patreon.com backslash voxology. You can also join the community and hang out and chat with us on the socials. Facebook.com backslash voxology podcast and on Instagram at voxology. Thank you, thank you, thank you for walking the long road with us.